Welcome to Chi Alpha at Texas Tech University. The messages in this podcast were designed to encourage you and to challenge you in your walk with Jesus. We're so excited that you're here, and we hope that this message will help you to better fight for God's kingdom with us. I think Jesus came because he saw that there's something standing between us and God, and he wanted um, us to have a restored relationship with God. Jesus came to the earth to preach, to reconcile his creation back to God. Um, I believe that Jesus came to earth to love on people better and to better relate to us. To save us. That way we could have a reconciled relationship with God, our Father, um, and also Jesus to show us how to live. That's why he was fully human, because I think it would be unfair if God asked us to live a certain way with him being God and not human, because we're human, so it's just a way for God to show us how to live and how to always be intimate with God. Jesus came to earth so he could be with us personally and so that we could go to heaven with him one day. I would say Jesus came to just save us from hell. Yeah, Jesus came, I mean, to save the lost. He came because God said he should, and he came down and he was obedient to his Father unto death, and it was so beautiful. He came for all of us. Uh, Jesus came to redeem humanity and to give us an example of how to live. Jesus loves us, and he came down to save us from our sins. Jesus came to save us from our sin. Uh, For me, for sinners like me. Mohammed, is Tochi here? Are you here, Tochi? You have a test? We'll be here tomorrow. Right. We'll be at Summit. Okay, bet. I love that, man. I love that answer. I love a lot of those answers. Most all of them. I think all of them, actually. Uh, I love that question. While that they were answering, I trust maybe you, like me, are thinking about what you would answer. What would be the first thing that popped into your head? Uh, I love that question. I love all questions that have multiple right answers. I think more tests should have that. You know, like A, B, C, or D are all right, only E would be wrong. That's, you need to have more tests that way. But uh, <laughs> the common answer to this question, in my experience, and I'm glad our video corroborated, if that's the right use of that word, with so. my experience, <laughs> you don't think so. Um, shout out to Mariah also making that video. Thank you. You're welcome. My friend. Uh, usually our answer, the first thing that pops into our head is one about what Jesus did for us. You heard of the common answer up there. He came to die for our sins. He came to take our place. Jesus himself gave some answers to this question. He said he came to destroy the works of the devil, to fulfill the law, to seek and save that which was lost, to bring the good news, to give life and life abundantly. Lots of reasons Jesus gave And I always find it interesting that our answer tends to be centered around what he did for us and around his death. And Jesus' death was extremely significant. It's the crux of history. The crucifixion was that. No single event has changed the course of history like that. But if he only came to die, then why did he live 33 years? You ever thought about that? If he came just to die, why not be born, live a few minutes, and then die, take our sin, and be done with it? He lived for 30 years, a quiet life, and then he had three years of public ministry that we know about, that we have in the scriptures, knowing about what Jesus' life was about. Yes, he came to die for the ungodly and save us from sin, but it can't just be about his death, but what about 
His life. So what was the purpose of Jesus' life? Our friend Kyle Volkmer, who's a Chi Alpha over at UTSA, godly man, loves Jesus, loves the scriptures. This is what he says. He says, all of his, Jesus' life exemplified the purpose of revealing the Father and nothing more. That's a, that's a bold statement, right? And nothing more that he came to reveal the Father. Now, if you have any skepticism, I'll walk you through a little snapshot of Jesus' life. You ready? ready. We've got it up here. You can click it, Kaylee. So here's a little mini timeline. At Jesus' birth, this is the famous birth of Jesus. We celebrate at Christmas every year. The angel comes to Joseph and he says, you're going to have a son. We're going to call him Emmanuel, which means? God with us. Hey, all right. Pay attention to Christmas. All right. God with us. So if Jesus' life was to reveal the Father, literally, the name means God with us, right in front of us. So this is his birth. We fast forward to Jesus as a 12-year-old. This is the only biblical account that we have of Jesus as an adolescent. Mary and Joseph were human, and they lost track of Jesus, believe it or not. He got lost. They lost him for three days. They couldn't find him. They are on the way back from a trip, basically. And they finally come upon Jesus, and he's in the temple talking with the religious leaders. And, of course, like any parent would be, they're frantic. They're like, Jesus, how could you do this to us? Where have you been? You've made us worried sick. And Jesus' response very simply is, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? That was just a 12-year-old response to your parents. I wouldn't have said that, but when you're, the, you know, when you're God, I guess you can talk like you're God. Uh, <laughs> So we have his birth, we have him at 12, and these next three sayings of Jesus are all when his ministry began. So as a 30-year-old, and I want you to hear the three different groups of people he's talking to. This is really cool. In case anyone had any doubts, in John chapter 5, he's being harassed by the Jewish leaders for the things that he's doing. And he simply declares to them, the religious leaders of the day, I only do what I see my father doing. In other words, if you have a problem with my actions, then what you really have a problem with is my father. Because yeah. I'm doing what he would do if he were here in the flesh. Yeah. In John chapter 12, Jesus is shouting to the crowd. So this is for anyone and everyone who wants to listen or who doesn't want to listen. They're going to hear it. He declares, I only say what I hear my father saying. In other words, you have a problem with what I'm saying? Well, you have a problem with God, yeah. with my father. That's who your problem is with. And finally, in John 14, this is a more intimate one. His disciples, Thomas and Philip, are with Jesus, and they're leveling with him. They're like, man, I, I see all these things you're doing, but like, I'm struggling. Can you give us a sign? Can we see the Father? They ask him that question. Could we see the Father? And Jesus says, guys, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Every action, every word that I do is because that's what the Father does and what the Father would do. And that cool? So there's a timeline of Jesus' life. His life was about revealing the Father who he was. And I believe this was his purpose because many people are cool with Jesus. Jesus is a cool dude, but I hear often that, yeah, I like Jesus, but the God of the Old Testament, like Father God, man, I don't know. He did some crazy stuff. He like destroyed cities. He, did, he flooded the earth like, man, that God and Jesus, they don't line up. Any of you guys ever felt like that or thought that? I definitely have. To this day, there are times where I'm reading the Old Testament, like, man, 
God, this is hard. Like, this is tough. How do I reconcile this? But it's such a contradictory statement. If you know the life of Jesus, if someone knows the life of Jesus, what we're talking about here, you see how contradictory it would be to say, hey, I'm cool with Jesus and what he taught, but not God, not, not the Father of the Old Testament. When Jesus' whole life was saying, it's all about God, it's all about him. So it's so contradictory, but yet so many people hold that view of Jesus. But that's the story of the Old Testament. Man cannot understand God and his law and his heart, and so they act selfishly and they disobey. Very much, my oldest daughter, Lynn, is four years old, and she loves candy. Shocker. She loves it so much that she would eat it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner if we let her. And every time without fail, these last few months, this will probably pass, babe, I'm sure. But every time she asks for it, and she'll ask like real nice, and we say no, she like pouts, throws a little fit, does a little like growl, kind of gets mad at us. And it's like, oh my gosh, I just told you you can't have candy. And I'm obviously making a decision for her good, right? Yeah. If I let her have candy every meal of the day, bad news bears, call CPS on me, it's not going to be good. That's going to be a bad life. <laughs> And it's a funny example, and we laugh at her as a four-year-old behaving that way. We're like, ah, she'll get over this. But that's a picture of man with God when we don't understand him. Often that's what we choose. We choose to just be disobedient and get mad. We don't seek to understand. We just get angry and we get disobedient. And that's the story of the Old Testament. Well, man, Cody, where's Midlothian Cody? Cody at leadership the other night said it so well. He said, religion is man's effort to find God, but the gospel is God's effort to find man. And that's the Old Testament. From creation, God creating a perfect world, us screwing it up for thousands of years. If you read this Old Testament, that's the narrative. It's man's disobedience and God's effort to reach him. But man is thick. And it finally got to a point after thousands of years that man had proven to themselves, most importantly, but to God, that they could not do it on their own. Yeah. That man could not fulfill the law and live a holy life in their own strength. So they needed God with us. They needed Emmanuel. They needed an example. Yeah. And that was Jesus. A.E. with them. My man says it this way. Christianity is the story of God getting his foot into history. And that foot was transfixed with a nail to prove to our full eyes and hard hearts that he was really there. We're stubborn, and oftentimes we need a physical example, and in the Father's case, he gave us one, and he sends his one and only beloved son to show us. So Jesus did not come just to die, but equally as important as his death and resurrection was the beautiful, sinless, selfless life that he lived. He showed us what a life submitted to God can look like us today, what our life can look like if we're saying what the Father would say, hearing what the Father is saying, acting as the Father would act. And what was the result of his life? Crucifixion by the religious men. Since that point in history, I have struggled to find any negative opinion on Jesus. It's so funny, even amongst other religions. Do you guys know that Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, everyone, they're cool with Jesus. Yeah. They think he's a great teacher or a prophet. They're cool with him. Gandhi, 
famously said, I love your Christ, just not your Christians. Albert Einstein, his word was enthralled. He says you can't but help study the life of Jesus and be enthralled by him. Einstein, Einstein was Jewish. Even he was enthralled by Jesus, his life. Atheists, agnostic, they don't even have a problem with Jesus. Because you look at what he did in his life and they're like, oh, he's pretty cool. He did some good stuff. Like, what is there to hate about him? It's so interesting. But all those people I just named miss one thing. And I don't want us to miss it tonight. And it's that Jesus came to reveal the Father. That Jesus and the Father are one. If you have a hard time understanding God, the Father, God, God of the Old Testament, Jesus came and said that me and the Father are one. And if you've been here since day one this semester, we've looked at God as our friend, God as a king, and last week, Rob did an awesome job talking about Jesus as our groom. And this week is the last part of this little series, I guess. And it's seeing God and understanding him as a father. And we've picked these four relationships because we believe if you miss any one of these four, you're going to severely miss out on the relationship with God, on the complete relationship with God. And, and to be completely transparent and vulnerable with you guys, of all of the four this one is the hardest for me, personally. Uh, if you were here the first week, I told a bit of my story. My dad was an alcoholic. He was absent, uh, physically absent, but emotionally and mentally absent also. And when I was 10 years old, my folks split up. And I'll never forget this. I remember it like it was yesterday. He's, we're sitting in his green Chevy, and he looks over at me with tears in his eyes, and he says, you're the man at the house now. He's a 10-year-old. I had three sisters and my mom. And then he goes and moves away to Oregon. And I took that on as much as a 10-year-old can, right? But it weighed on me forever. And I've always, it's always been a work understanding who God is as Father. And I share that because I know that I'm not the only one. I know that. I know that our generation is called the fatherless generation by some sociologists and psychologists. Some crazy stats. Right now, only two-thirds of children have spent their entire childhood with an intact family, with a father and a mother in the house. Only two-thirds. Pretty crazy. Here's some statistics on fatherless homes. If you come from a fatherless household, 71% of high school dropouts and teenage pregnancies come from fatherless homes. 85% of children with behavioral disorders and youth in prison come from fatherless homes. This is the craziest one. 90% of homeless or runaway children grow up in fatherless homes. That's crazy. This is an issue that society, outside of scripture, that society is obviously decided that it's a big deal. And I go on in this, is from fatherhood.org, this website that looks all into this. In the article I was reading, it said, Growing up with a father who is abusive or silent can be as damaging as growing up with no father at all. So I want you to hear me. My story was with an absent father, but I know that even if you're part of that, that two-thirds and you grew up with a father, and even if he's wonderful and an amazing man and you love him, he's not perfect, right? I've been at this fatherhood thing four years, 
and I'm giving everything I got, and I am a selfish father. I know I've gotten mad when I shouldn't, I've said things I shouldn't, but I love my girls with everything I have. And no matter how good your dad was, I know he wasn't perfect. And if you ask any psychologist, sociologist, it's so common that they link so many of our adult issues with our relationship with our parents growing up. Right? It's even the stereotypical scene in movies where the guy's laying horizontal on the couch and they're like, tell me about your childhood. Right? Tell me about your relationship with your dad or your mom. And so because of this, it's no surprise to me that when we hear God's a father, that I know I'm not alone in this. When you hear God's father, who your dad is, goes through your mind. And you might be like me and say, man, if that's what a father is supposed to be, I don't want to know God as a father. And that's hard. But my story, I want, to, I want to finish it to give you hope. Because as I've grown up and into adulthood, I've gotten to know my dad and we've become friends. Because when I got right with Jesus, gave my life to Jesus, immediately Jesus took all of the bitterness, anger, all of it out of my heart towards my dad. And, he, and I was so overwhelmed with forgiveness. It was just very logical. It was like, man, I'm so forgiven and I'm so joyful. How could I be mad at anybody? And the Lord very quickly was like, okay, well, you're dad. And it was like, oh, man. You know, you're like, shoot, he called me on it. <laughs> like, this one's hard. But it was only as I got to know my heavenly father did I start getting healed of stuff. Yeah. And the more I got to know God and see his forgiveness and his love for me, I was filled with that forgiveness. And I got to have a beautiful conversation with my dad. 22 years old, was terrified to have a conversation, but I looked him in the eye and told him the gospel. I was like, Dad, I, I want you to know that I used to hate you. I used to curse your name. I wanted nothing to do with you. My life was purposed about not being like you. You were an idol, an idol that I was opposite direction running from, you know. And I told him, you know, but I love you and I forgive you and I want you to know my girls. I want you to know my wife. I want you to be involved. And I want you to know, most importantly, that me forgiving you has nothing to do with what you've done. Because God's forgiven me and it has nothing to do with what I've done. Jesus died for me to forgive me and it wasn't on anything that I've done. And I forgive you in the same way. Because I want you to know Jesus. And as we talked, I find out that my dad was predisposed to a lot of his behavior. His dad was an alcoholic. His dad died when he was young. He never grew up knowing how to be a man. And so he had four kids. How was he supposed to know how to teach me? Right? And so they're not excuses, but I was able to sympathize and empathize with my dad instead of just being bitter at him. Yeah. Right? And, only, and that only, you can only do that in a position of strength, right? When you're hurt, how easy is it to just cross your arms and say, to hell with them, right? I mean, really, just want nothing to do with you. But it takes someone whole and strong to seek forgiveness. And that's what Jesus can do. And so our society realizes that we need fathers. We need dads who are going to be dads. But I think we also need to relearn what this term means. What a father is supposed to be. These ideas that come in our minds that we've learned from our dads. And hopefully there's a lot of good ones. But they're not the best ones. And our heavenly father is going to show us the best. So what is God the father like? We could spend eternity answering this question. Because <laughs> God is infinite. Come to the book sale tomorrow. You can pick up some books on the topic. 
<laughs> lots and lots of books, very thick volumes written on this exact topic. But I want to share a few of you with you guys that the Lord shown me that I know, not just know that are true, but I know that are true, and I've seen them play out. And this first one, we're going to share three of them. This first one is that God is a generous provider. In Luke 11, Jesus says, If you wicked fathers know how to give good gifts, how much more will your heavenly Father give to those who ask? So cool. Our man A.W. Tozer, A. Tozer fans, a few? Okay, I'm in. He wrote a book called The Incredible Christian, and he wrote a small article in there, and it blew my mind. He basically lays it out like this. Take these two ideas. If God has infinite resources, and he also is infinitely generous, meaning that God wants to give us good gifts more than you could ever want one for yourself. It's hard to wrap your mind around, but it's true, because God sees all, and he knows the implications of what a good gift can be. And so not only does he have infinite resources, but he's also infinitely generous. And so the only conclusion is if we don't get a gift, a good gift from God, the issue has to be on our end. Right? A good gift I want to give my girls one day is a car. When they turn 16, they get a license, however that's going to play out. I'd love for them to have a car. It's important as an adult to be able to get around and be independent, have a job, all that stuff. If Lynn came to me tomorrow, no matter how much she begged me for a car... I'm not giving her a car, right? <laughs> Even if I have the resources and I'm generous to her because she's not ready for it. The issue's on her end. Does that make sense? And so any good gift that we don't receive from God, you can trust that, it's, that you're not ready for it. It's something in you that God has to work, that he's going to do in you first, right? As foolish it would be to give my four-year-old keys to a car, the Lord will withhold good gifts from you. Does that make sense? Thank you, Jesus. St. Augustine said it this way, that God is always trying to give good things to us, but our hands are too full to receive them. <laughs> so sometimes it takes us laying things down. There are things in our life that are bad for you, and if I gave you this on top of it, it'd be bad. You don't want this thing. So God is a generous provider. Our Father is a generous provider. This second one is that God is holy. And it's, that's such a hard word modern day. You didn't, like me, you didn't grow up reading the Bible, studying scripture, this word holy. We sing it, we say it, it's like, what does this mean? I think the best modern day idea that we can put in our like, connotation or our context, I guess would be better, is perfect. We sang it today that God is perfect in all of his ways. He's incapable of being imperfect. And what's cool is, Jesus commands us to be perfect. In Matthew chapter 5, he says, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. See some eyebrows raised. That's good. That's crazy. Because if you were with a street preacher last week, you heard all these Christians yelling out, God doesn't need us to be perfect. It's like, dang, Jesus said something different. This is controversial. I see shirts that say no perfect people allowed in a church. I'm like, well, shoot, I guess no Christians are allowed. That stinks. Uh, Jesus commanded it to be perfect. But that word is a Greek word, teleos, and it simply means to be mature. And to be mature means you live up to what you know. Right? You're held responsible for what you know to be true. And so the reason that God is perfect is because God knows everything. And he also lives up to everything. But do you see how a four-year-old or a 20-year-old 
can be perfect. If you're living up to what you know, if this is what God's told you to do and you're doing it, then by God's standard, you are perfect. Isn't that cool? He's not cruel. He doesn't give you something that's unattainable. That's not who he is. And I'll prove it to you. God treated Jesus this way. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus gets baptized as an obedient work to the Father. Uh, it's Mark chapter 1. It should be the one right before that. Uh, anyway, so we're 30 years, right? Jesus is 30 years old, and he has had a quiet life. Been in carpentry work, living at home, obeying his mom, being a citizen. We know nothing about his life outside of his birth and that one account that I shared with you as a 12-year-old. Yeah. At this point in Jesus' life, he had yet to preach any sermons. He'd yet to heal anybody. He hasn't performed any miracles. He's done no formal ministry. And at his baptism, God the Father, booming voice from heaven. I can only imagine what this was like. Jesus, in another act of obedience, gets baptized. And God the Father proclaims, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Do you see that God is pleased with his son? He hadn't died for sin yet. Right? I asked a lot of you, you said that's why he came, to die for sin. Well, God was pleased with Jesus way before that. You see that? He lived his life in obedience, even though it wasn't out on the street corners, healing people, proclaiming truth. God verbally speaks. Can y'all imagine? He verbally affirms Jesus. This is my son, and I am pleased with him. How cool is that? No formal ministry had happened yet. Thank you, Jesus. And finally, the last one we'll talk about is that God is desperate. And this is a, an odd one. Don't turn deaf to me just yet. What I mean by this is that God in his strength, because of his strength and because of our weakness, he is desperate for us to come back to him. Yeah. The, best, when I, the way I learned this truth was when Lynn was born, just over four years ago. When she was born... She came out not crying. If you know anything about babies, that's one of the first things you want to hear. You want to hear them crying. They've got all this fluid in their lungs, all throughout their body. Crying is a gift from God for them to flush all that out, right? She came out and she wasn't crying. She was like grunting. She couldn't, she was like trying to breathe. Terrified, right? And we're there so worried and they take her in the back and as she's trying to cry and get this stuff out, she actually blows a little hole in her lung. And we're looking at this picture and I... I don't have it here, but Lynn, we walk in and she has, she has like every sort of monitor hooked up to her tubes going in and out of every hole in her body. And it's just like this little newborn baby and she's in a plastic cage. No one can touch her. Scariest moment of my life. Absolutely terrifying. And it was in that moment where I was overcome, the emotion I was overcoming with desperation. And at no point in my life had I ever felt like, God, take my life. Like, take me instead. Like, we say that, and you've heard that, but that was, for me, that was the first time I actually believed it. And in that moment, I was willing. God, take me. Shoot me dead. I'm willing. Let's do it. If she can get out of here, and she can be healthy. And so my desperation for her had nothing to do with my weakness, but it had to do with my strength as her dad. And I know it's my job to care for her. And so I was willing, whatever it costs, Money, my life, what does she need from me? I'll give it to her. 
Do you see that desperation? And God is that way for us. And the proof is the cross. That God wanted to buy you back so badly in his strength and in your weakness and in my weakness. He saw that there's nothing you could do on your own. That's the Old Testament, right? Man failing over and over again, choosing sin, choosing selfishness. But God's reaction is grief. In Genesis chapter 6, the same chapter where he floods the world and people point to that to say, God is so mean, I can't believe he did this. Before he does that, he sees, and the Bible says that he sees man and that every intent of his heart is only evil continually. That he looked at every man and woman on earth and he saw that they were purely selfish. That's all that was in them was selfishness. And it says that God's response was grief. It said it grieved him in his heart at the wickedness of man because he had not made them that way, but they had chosen it for themselves. And you see this in Jesus' life. Jesus looks over Jerusalem and it says that he sees them as sheep without a shepherd and he's weeping. He's weeping over a city because they're not following after God as they know they should be. And so God's response is brokenness. And so he does what he has to to buy us back. That's how good he is. And he doesn't just want good things for us. Jesus just didn't die for a few things. He died for us to be holy and to be set free the way he is. Our friend Robbie Zacharias, my man, old Robbie, tells this story about a father and daughter, and the daughter is about to go out on a date, and she's going out with a, a guy that's got a bad reputation, right? It's like your father's worst nightmare. She likes the bad boy. Oh, no. And she wants to go out with him, and she pleads, and she pleads, and the father's like, please don't, please don't. It's not going to be a good thing. And so finally she's like, well, I'm going. And the father's like, okay, grab a coal from the fireplace. With her. Grab a coal. She's like, Dad, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm about to go out. It's like, just please, just grab the coal. Dad, I'm not going to do that. He's like, why not? There hasn't been a fire. It's not, it's not going to burn you. Just go grab the coal. There's no fire. What's the matter? She replies, it won't burn me, but it'll stain me. And the father replied, that's what I'm trying to tell you. That so often we think Jesus is going to withhold things from us and tell us not to do things that are going to kill us, that are deadly. But a good parent loves you so much that they don't just want good things for you. They want the best things for you. The law said, don't murder. Murder's bad. Jesus raised the bar and said, don't even hate somebody. Don't even have hatred in your heart. Because you know what? Hating someone, that's not going to get you killed. But it's going to stain you. Don't commit adultery. Jesus said, don't even look upon someone who's not your spouse and have lustful thoughts to them. Is it going to kill you? No. You can lust all day long. You can have hatred in your heart all day long. It won't kill you, but it'll stain you. And the Bible says Jesus died because our sins were like crimson, and he made them white as snow. That God is such a good parent that he wants you to be holy and perfect as he is. Isn't that good? He's not a helicopter parent, paranoid, freaking out at every little thing you're doing. And his love for you and his awareness of your ineptitude of walking in holiness apart from him 
has caused him to act the way he has acted to buy us back. Does that make sense? So what's keeping you from understanding and believing God as Father? A good chance is that Jesus in John chapter 8 to the Pharisees, he says, you are acting like your father, the devil. Pretty intense. And he gives his reasoning. He says, because you are after his desires. He says, you are acting in a selfish way. This fun thing we like to say, oh, we're all God's children. Jesus said differently. He said, to be someone's child is to be after what they're after. It's to care about what they care about. Right? That was the definition Jesus gave. And I think many of us struggle knowing God is the Father because we're not living a life after God, doing the things He wants us to do, thinking the way He wants us to think, speaking the way He wants us to speak, like Jesus did. Right? But here's the good news. Jesus, John chapter 1, it says that as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to be children of God. You have been given the right to be God's child because of what Jesus has done. Is that good news? Your sin, everything can be washed and forgiven solely because of what Jesus has done. The language in the New Testament is adoption. That no one is born a Christian, but you're adopted into the family of God. And only through Jesus do you become in the family of God. And it's really, really good news to be a son or a daughter of God. Do you guys know who can go into the king's chamber at 3 a.m. and wake him up for a glass of water? His kid. His son or his daughter. Not his general. Not his advisors. But his kid can. His kid could wake up the king at 3 a.m. for some water because he's thirsty. <laughs> That's the kind of access that we have with God as our Father. Isn't that good news? Thank you, Jesus. So we ask this question to our friends. What if we carried ourselves knowing in confidence that we were God's son or God's daughter? Here are some responses. So you don't really have to worry anymore because you know that um, you know that the perfect God is in control of your life. He's there for you. He can be. He's your comforter. He'll also love you unconditionally but he'll also love you toughly so if you mess up he'll let you know but it doesn't mean that he's going to stop loving you um i wouldn't be walking in fear and not having anxiety over um, certain situations that might come up um and yeah just kind of have the freedom to be who i want to be i think i would reach out to him more uh, pray to him praying to god is something i don't do as much as i should be and if i know if like as much as i speak with my own dad via like text messaging or or dumb things like emails, like I should be contacting God, my Heavenly Father, that often. I think I would not second guess myself and the things that I know the Lord's instilled in me. Um, I wouldn't second guess that I hear the Lord's voice and that I understand who He is. And I don't think I would get as frustrated with things that happen throughout the day. Uh, wow. If I was fully walking in the confidence of 
God was my father, I probably wouldn't even hesitate to go talk to anybody. I'd probably just go around campus and just say hi to everyone, tell them about who Jesus is because I would just have the boldness and the courage because nothing else would really matter. I mean, Christ is my father, so. Ooh. Um, I just feel like there would be more joy in my life every day and that I wouldn't have any fear about anything that could possibly come in my way. Turn. Um, definitely more boldness. Like if you, if I figured that God was like with me, like right by my side and like holding my hand through everything, then I wouldn't be afraid to walk up to a random person or um, like share what he's revealing to me. Like it wouldn't be, it wouldn't require any thought. Like it would just be second nature. So, so good. Perfect love casts out fear. And that's what most of those responses were about. I'd be more bold. I'd be more free. I wouldn't have anxiety. And I love all those answers. And that life that they all described is available. Jesus gave us the right to be sons and daughters of God. So cool. If you heard Jason's video, he said that's what the weekend kind of the theme is going to be about that. be about identity. Who we are in Jesus. So if you haven't signed up for Summit, sign up for Summit. Come hang out with us. We'll learn more about Jesus together. Have a blast while we do it. But I love you guys, and I'm excited for this weekend. Go have a blast tonight. Don't get into too much trouble that you can't come to Summit. But I love you all. Peace. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Texas Tech Chi Alpha. For more information, you can visit our website at ttuxa.org. Baby.